Good afternoon, and welcome to Citizen K, a weekly current affairs program featuring in-depth interviews and perspectives. I'm Kareem Mosna. This week on Citizen K. If you take a patient who is a high histamine producer and you insert their microbiota into a mouse, that mouse will then make a large amount of histamine in its intestine And that histamine in turn will sensitize the nerves in the gut to give uh, exaggerated pain signaling. Researchers from Queen's University in partnership with McMaster University have discovered a gut bacterial super producer of histamine that causes pain flare-ups for some patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Dr. Stephen Vanner will explain the study's findings and how this knowledge can help with treatment. But first, there have been some unprecedented heat waves in the United States and Europe, and the consequences go beyond the obvious. Joining me is Queen's PhD candidate in biology, Xinyu Sun. She's going to help us learn more about how these heat waves are affecting aquatic ecosystems. Some extreme heat uh, recently through parts of the U.S. and Europe, notably, of course, in the U.K. uh, as of late. Now, the effects we think of, you know, are visible effects, right? You know, wildfires, uh, people dying of direct heat-related causes. But you're here to tell us about how it's affecting our lakes and the lake ecosystems. So tell me a bit about how extreme heat can cause negative effects to the lakes. So uh, heat waves can affect lake ecosystems through direct and indirect uh, these two ways. So directly, uh, heat waves, um, during a heat wave uh, exposure, organisms will be exposed to very extreme temperatures. And these extreme um, temperatures can be harmful for them. It can even kill some of the organisms. So that's the direct way. And indirectly, um, so because some uh, organisms in the water are more sensitive to high temperatures than the others. So they are more easily to be affected by heat waves. However, it doesn't mean that uh, like other non-sensitive organisms will not be influenced. Actually, so because we know that um, organisms interact with each other and they form a very complex food web. Therefore, if like one component of the food web is influenced by heat waves, the whole food web will be disturbed. Uh, For example, I studied zooplankton and zooplankton are sensitive to uh, to heat wave effects. So when zooplankton are like uh, impacted by heat waves, uh, they are, so zooplankton consume algae. And so we would expect that uh, the algae biomass will increase. It means that we're likely to see uh, more uh, algae in the water, and we might we might see the water turn to be like greenish, and algal blooms might even happen. And also, uh, zooplankton are important food sources for higher trophic level organisms, such as larger invertebrates and fish. 
I just wanted to know a little bit more about zooplankton. So now do, do we, where in the world do we see zooplankton? Uh, zooplankton are in the water. They're every, like they're in the water. So zooplankton are uh, tiny little uh, animals living in the water. They're everywhere. <clears throat> so, and they form a really important component of food web. So they eat algae. They are also um, main food sources for larger invertebrates, such as microinvertebrates in water. And they're also like a larval stage of insects. And they're also main food sources for some fish. Okay, so we could, so now, now algae growth, uh, as you were alluding to earlier, uh, can, can cause uh, the, the water, as you said, to, to turn green. So this can affect uh, fresh drinking water, but it can also affect uh, the, the, the life under there, perhaps the, the fish that, that some of us eat as well, from what you're telling me. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, um, so yeah, you're right. So increase in the algae uh, biomass can be harmful, can, can impact the water quality. Uh, and uh, so some, because some of the algae are like, they produce toxins and those toxins can make water toxic for humans, like, like even let's say swimming in the water or consuming the water. And they can also be harmful for the fish living in the water. So what, what sort of temperature, because, you know, we're not seeing the temperatures reaching the, you know, the forties that we're, that it's going on in the U S and Europe, but sort of what temperature, if you can answer this, what temperature is sort of when these risks uh, start to occur, is there a certain temperature range? Um, it really depends. Um, because as I, um, I kind of mentioned that before, so organisms have different sensitivities to temperatures. Some are very sensitive, some are less sensitive. So it depends on the organisms in the water, like in that specific region. But as for the range, so uh, we know that um, the, the temperature, the water temperature will, um, I would say like not increase as high as air temperature. Uh, but the water temperature, but the air temperature can hit uh, the water temperature. So the water temperature can still increase, but maybe not as high as the air temperature. However, um, the organisms living in the water are also more sensitive to the heat. Um, as for the range, so some uh, previous studies uh, have found that the temperature, let's say um, it's actually like, my uh, part of my study found that uh, the temperature at around 28 degrees Celsius in the water can uh, can be uh, can can cause a decrease in the uh, number of zooplankton in the water. 20? 28. 28 degrees Celsius. Okay. Yeah. Of the, so the, if the water temperature is that high, it and that's the like average. So if it's like 27 or even like 20 as, as low as 25 can still be harmful for some of the sensitive individuals. So wow. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, so so as I said, like different uh species, different individuals have different sensitivities to temperature. So it's it's not it's not easy to give a like specific range of the temperature. 
but in general, this extreme uh, acute heat stress, uh, we would expect a really hard, a really like uh, significant impact on aquatic organ. Well, and especially, you know, if, if these are prolonged, you know, if, if it's just maybe one day, it, it, it gets hot. But I can see how, you know, if that if the water temperature keeps heating up through prolonged extreme heat, then we start to to to, to see some of these risks with with algae growth uh, affecting the water. Yeah. Yeah. We would expect that. Great. OK. Um, and, and, and of course, we can attribute a lot of this to uh, global warming and climate change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, yeah, because of the climate change, we uh, actually, uh, many researchers have uh, like established models that predict that um, in the future, heat waves will become more frequent and intensified in many ways. Wow, uh, certainly, you know, we're going to have to be, you know, thinking of, of some some solutions uh, to, to prevent uh, uh, this from from getting worse. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, Shinu, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining me today to uh, to, to to share some uh, insight into into what these heat waves are causing in, in the lakes. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was my conversation with Shinu Soon, Queen's PhD candidate in biology. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna. Well, continuing now with a very science-focused Citizen K today... Researchers at Queen's, in partnership with McMaster University in Hamilton, have made a breakthrough when it comes to helping those with irritable bowel syndrome. They have discovered a gut bacterial superproducer of histamine, which for some IBS patients can cause pain flare-ups. Queen's Professor of Medicine, Dr. Stephen Vanner, is going to walk us through their research process and explain how these findings ultimately can help in treating these pain symptoms. So I guess we'll start with, with the main discovery here. Um, so a gut bacterial superproducer of histamine causing uh, pain flare-ups in uh, some patients with IBS. Uh, talk about the, the process of how um, this finding came about. So this uh, discovery was, was triggered actually by a diet study that we had conducted in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. We'd known that uh, certain carbohydrates that we eat, in fact, these are carbohydrates in healthy foods, and we don't metabolize them uh, as well as we'd previously thought. And some of these escaped into the lower intestine, and there the bacteria ferment these, and they produce certain biologically active metabolites. And so in the course of doing this diet study, uh, we found that if we lowered some of these carbohydrates in our diet, that pain symptoms significantly improved in a large number of patients. And we had also measured the histamine levels in these patients, and we found that they dropped significantly. And so that led to the question, where's this histamine coming from? 
And given that we were altering the diet, it seemed to make sense to look at the bacteria in our intestine as the possible source of this histamine that in turn could be being produced and signaling to pain sensing nerves in the gut. Okay, so you talked a bit about diet. Can we give a bit of an example of perhaps uh, which foods were, were leading to, to more of this pain and, 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 and the change that led to um, a reduction in symptoms? So these, uh, these foods uh, are called, they have, there's an acronym called FODMAPs. And that acronym stands for fermentable oligo um, dye and monosaccharides and polyols. And so that's a fancy name uh, for uh, multiple groups of foods that uh, contain these complex carbohydrates. So some examples are dairy products, uh, garlic is, a, is another one. Uh, and so there's, there's multiple, multiple different areas um, of food groups that contain these. Now I wanna say right off the start that um, certainly we don't uh, recommend that patients go on a, a restrictive diet because we, we don't want them to be avoiding healthy foods. But there is a process to go through to find out which of these foods may be a particular troublemaker for people. And so some reduction in some of these foods might be beneficial for patients. Tell me a bit about the bacterium Klebsiella. Klebsiella aeruginis. Yeah. Yes, as I understand that this has been identified as a, a key contributor to some of this 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 gut pain that we're talking about here. Yes, that's uh, a particular exciting finding here because we have billions of bacteria in our intestine, uh, but. What's clear is that not all of them uh, have the ability to create these large amounts of histamine. Histamine. So this this particular species uh, is just one of these, you know, hundreds of millions of bacteria, and so we can use this bacteria then uh, to identify which patients may be susceptible to this pain signaling pathway and also develop strategies that might be able to target this specific bacteria. It may help us to also explain why doing sort of a broader look at the microbiota in our intestine is so challenging because it is so complex and we can see that within these millions of bacteria, specific bacteria may, may be most important or small communities of bacteria rather than just this broad attempt to manipulate the microbiota. For example, giving people antibiotics is really kind of hitting the microbiota over the head with a sledgehammer, where, whereas what we're discovering here is that very targeted therapies in the right individuals is gonna be most beneficial and the, and the safest way to treat people. Now, this is all based on a study that basically followed individuals uh, over several months from what I understand. Well, uh, that was only part of the study. So this is a very, very large study. So yes, uh, uh, there were a cohort of patients 
in this study that were followed for several months and they reported their pain scores and then the histamine levels uh, were measured in these patients. And there was a correlation between when their pain went up and down and the histamine levels went up and down. But there was much, much more to this study. We, we actually used what's called a reverse translational approach where we took the stool that we had from patients who we identified were high histamine producers and we made a humanized mouse model. So the way we did that is our colleagues that we collaborate with at McMaster have a germ-free facility. So these are mice that don't have any microbiota in their intestine. And then we insert into those mice the microbiota from the humans. And so this is a so-called humanized mouse model of irritable bowel syndrome. And then we can uh, study the uh, pathways that are signaling to the nerves in a much more controlled fashion. And, and just to simplify and clarify, so the just what is the exact link that was found between the histamine levels and the pain? So what we showed was that if you take a patient who is a high histamine producer and you insert their microbiota into a mouse, that mouse will then make a large amount of histamine in its intestine. And that histamine in turn will sensitize the nerves in the gut to give uh, exaggerated pain signaling. And histamine, like all neuroactive mediators, these are metabolites that signal to nerves, work through receptors. They bind to the receptor and activate the nerves. And we discovered that the histamine 4 receptor is the key signaling pathway. And this is very exciting because now we can target that receptor and this is one means that we have of shutting down this pain signaling pathway. Excellent. And anything else that you'd like to, to touch on with regards to the findings of this, of this research? Well, I, I'd like to talk maybe about the uh, broader implications. So uh, as I say, this is, um, from our perspective, a very exciting and novel finding because up until this point, there's been a lot of suspicion about the microbiota uh, being important in signaling in patients with irritable bowel syndrome causing symptoms. But because of the complexity of the microbiota, up until this point, there really hasn't been any clear cause and effect. And so that's one of the key uh, steps forward is now we're showing clear cause and effect. In other words, we're demonstrating directly that these bacteria can release signaling molecules that can make pain worse. And so this uh, allows us to do a number of things that are beneficial for patients. And one of the things that may be not uh, obvious 
to the average listener, but I think would resonate with the patients is one of the challenges for them is they go to the doctor and the doctor said, gee, I, I know you've got these symptoms that are really troubling you, but your tests are all normal. And that's a little bit hard to hear as a patient because sometimes the message is maybe a bit dismissive or even in the past, there's been occasions where patients inadvertently have gotten the message that the symptoms are all in their head, for example, to use a, a sort of a broad expression. And here we're showing now, well, actually we, we do understand uh, what's generating these symptoms. They're not all in your head. There actually are abnormalities uh, in the gut that are responsible for this. So that's, I think, uh, an important finding and one we can use in the clinic to help patients to understand uh, why they may be getting symptoms despite the standard tests being normal. The second point is that now knowing this bacteria and now knowing that histamine can be high in, in the stool, we can start to identify which of the patients with irritable bowel syndrome would benefit from therapies directed towards the signaling pathway. This isn't gonna explain the symptoms in all patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome is extremely common. Maybe upwards of 10% of our adult population experience symptoms uh, related in some uh, way to irritable bowel syndrome. And it's, it's likely that the pathophysiology is gonna be different in different patients. So understanding which patients might benefit from this. And then as I alluded to earlier, um, having identified these no novel uh, targets for therapy uh, is, going to, is going to be um, an exciting step forward for these patients. Excellent. Well, doctor, thank you very much uh, for sharing all this today. It's my pleasure. And, and thank you for your interest in our study. That was Dr. Stephen Vanner, a professor of medicine at Queen's University. He had a few other individuals he wanted to mention. I collaborate closely with my colleague, Dr. David Reed, who's a co-first author on this study. And uh, we collaborate with um, our McMaster colleagues, Dr. Chemik Bursik and Dr. Uh, Jada De Palma. You're listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, CFRC.ca, and podcasting through Spotify and iTunes. I'm Kareem Mosna. As a reporter, I can tell you the process of finding a new story or a perspective to cover is not always linear. As you're about to hear in my conversation with Tom Greening, Executive Director of Homebase Housing, you're going to hear how one story led to a whole new story and perspective. So uh, I'm calling as I just read a story uh, of those camping behind the old beer store at Baghdad and Cataract. We were basically, again, given eviction notice by police and told they would have to go. Um, now, this is not the first time this has happened. But let's talk a little bit about the encampment protocol. What exactly does this mean for the unhoused? Well, the example you just mentioned of the beer store, I have some some familiarity with that situation. So um, that really is not uh, that that's not an example of the city enforcing the uh, no camping policy. Uh, so that is private property. Uh, so it's private ownership, and whoever the owner is, I, I have no idea who owns the property, but 
I think that they were responding to uh, complaints from neighbors and perhaps uh, police or fire department about people camping on the property. And so the owner of the property had called the police to have the police uh, ask people to leave that property. And I know that our staff then got called as well to come over and see if they could help people clean up and pack up and see where they might uh, go at the end of the day. And that's what happened, I believe. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Yes, the difference between private property and the yeah. encampment, you know, that's where it was more to do right. with um, camping uh, in parks and all that. Like, like, of course, Bell Park being uh, an example that was uh, that was quite timely as well. Yes, so Bell Park is an example of city-owned property. And I, th I think um, that the, uh, you know, it, it, people call it the encampment policy, but really it's the no camping no camping rule on uh, public property, city-owned public property. So I think that that came into effect uh, three or four weeks ago, um, and it's my impression that the city or bylaw, as representatives of the city, are really taking a bit of a graduated approach to it. I know that they have asked people who are camping in different city parks to stop camping in those uh, locations, um, but there are other locations where they have not yet... Uh, ask people to move on. Well, and this is, is causing, of course, a lot of challenges uh, after council did re reinstate the encampment protocol. I mean, where uh, where, do the, where can the unhoused go in these situations? Yeah. Um, well, if, if everybody who was currently camping uh, required uh, or wanted to come into, for example, use an emergency shelter, uh, there certainly are not enough spaces available. Um, on any day of the week, uh, we usually have one or two or maybe three beds available. So for people who do want to uh, look at alternatives, we usually do have space to bring in a few people each day. Uh, and I know that some of the shelters in the city of Kingston, including those that we operate at home base, are also having some success in terms of people who are in shelter right now, uh, helping them f uh, find places to move to. So, you know, just in the last uh, two weeks, I've heard of four people who are currently at the end from the cold shelter who will be moving to their own places uh, shortly. So, you know, there is movement. Uh, people do come into shelter, and there are expectations that they will want to look for a place. And we've been having, I'd say, a, a moderate level of success in terms of helping people find those places. But... But again, there are uh, more than 100 people right now that are camping, uh, we believe, in the city of Kingston, and there's no way that we could accommodate 100 people today, for example. Yeah, it's there, there, there's only so many that, that can be assisted, you know, from, from one day to the next uh, through uh, a, a transitional housing uh, initiative that, that, that you're able to offer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so basically, from what I'm gathering, what home-based housing can do is, is if there is space, uh, you know, a, a temporary shelter can be offered until, you know, they're able to to move to the to, to the next stage. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking that um, uh, you know that the 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 city will likely need to try to find some additional uh, space for people to stay, especially as we move into uh, the fall and winter months. Um, there are some people who may want to try to remain outside and camp, um, and some people probably do have a skill set to be able to manage that. Other people, I'm afraid, don't have that skill set to manage cold weather and uh, will hopefully be looking for some alternatives. 
and hopefully, especially before the cold weather gets here, there will be some additional uh, spaces created. What 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 would you like to 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 see from from the city at this point? Well, I know that there are um, small initiatives underway uh, that collectively are adding up to you know create a bit of a. Um, uh, sort of a moderate uh, response in terms of new alternatives for people. Um, there's no way that, for example, by the fall and winter that the city or anybody for that matter will be able to build new affordable housing. Uh, so at this point, I think that uh, what I would hope for would be some additional overnight shelter beds for people prior to the cold weather arriving. Excellent, Tom. Hey, thank you very yep. much uh, for speaking with me today. I'm glad you reached out and chatted. Thanks. That was my conversation with Executive Director of Home-Based Housing, Tom Greening. And that's all for Citizen K this week. Citizen K was produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Queen's University. CFRC 101.9 FM broadcasts from Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you for listening. I'm Kareem Mosna.